The Eagle and Child, Episode 41. Mere Christianity, Book 4, Chapter 11. The New Men. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and I'm joined by a man who has certainly been transformed by this process of reading through mere Christianity, Matt. I do feel through this process in, in the recording of this podcast and going in deep to all of the different chapters a little bit closer to my true self. It's allowed me to go deeper in my faith and hopefully die to my false self and be reborn into my true self a little bit more. But today, friends, is the last chapter of mere Christianity. And we will be just... The crowd go wild. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering what was going on there. <laughs> Woo! Think about this for a second. 40 weeks of this for 30 minutes. People have listened to 20 hours of our voice. That's terrifying really is. And it took us a year to read a book. <laughs> uh, we're not the fastest readers. <laughs> no. You know, that we enjoy hearing ourselves talk way too much. Oh, uh, see, I hate it. <laughs> Every time I have to start editing a new episode, it's like, ugh, it's us again. Like I said, today is the last chapter of Mere Christianity, and we're going to be discussing a topic that I believe is one of the most central points to Christianity. And it's a point that I don't think is stressed enough. And as we've gone through mere Christianity, this jumped out to me as we've broken this down really slowly and revolutionized my spiritual journey. And I do not say that lightly. It's a concept that you see all throughout the New Testament once you understand it. In the Catholic tradition, it's called theosis. It's this process of spiritual transformation, as Lewis discusses, where we go from the natural life, or if you recall, bios, to the divine life, zoe. And as the title says, we become new men. And at the end of this talk, I look forward to sharing some practical advice on how we can foster this transformation. But until then, we'll start with a quote. And David and I thought it would be good to pull one from scripture, because this is what this whole book has been building from. And we want to show that this concept, Lewis isn't just pulling it out of thin air, but this is very much a a concept that's all throughout scripture. So this quote is from Romans 12, 1 to 2. Paul says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's actually one of my favorite scripture passages. Is it really? What do you love about it? The danger with a living sacrifice is it can crawl off the altar if it doesn't like it very much. (laughs) And so as I'm trying to offer myself as a living sacrifice to God, I know that I have a temptation to, uh, to squirm away. But I also like the idea that in this passage, it shows that the offering of our bodies, the offering of our whole self is spiritual worship. And also that there is a very clear distinction between the wisdom of this world and what it means to be a person that is praised by this world and to be the kind of person that God actually wants us to become. And that comes by renewal, a renewal of our mind that then starts working itself out into the rest of our lives. 
And it's through this renewal that we come to know God and we come to be able to discern his will. As Paul says, what is good and acceptable and as we saw in a couple of chapters ago, perfect. Oh, that's a beautiful way of putting it. And remember when I mentioned a few episodes ago, I made the comment of that priest that mentioned to me, start every day on your knees and say, God, here is my whole being. I give it to you. Essentially offering yourself for him to transform you. Offering yourself as a living sacrifice. Exactly. Who would have thought this would come full circle? <laughs> Only the Holy Spirit. And for our drink today, we're drinking Hibiki Suntory Whiskey. I actually picked this up when I was flying back from London to San Diego about a month ago. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Ooh, that's quite smooth. It is. It's really nice. It's got lovely perfume and it's uh, warm and a little bit sweet. I've really got into Japanese whiskeys recently. I've never had a Japanese whiskey before. Thank you for opening my palate to it. Next time you're back in San Diego, we'll go to the Aero Club because they've got a phenomenal selection. When I was just in San Diego, so I listeners, I just got back there and saw David and I was at a Notre Dame game and one of the gentlemen there said, the next time I come, I have to go to the Aero Club. It's this famous establishment, a lot of tradition. And a lot of whiskey. <laughs> a lot of whiskey. That's all he needed to say to sell me. One other thing that was really great this week, other than having you back in town briefly, was that our C.S. Lewis book club went to see The Most Reluctant Convert, starring Max McLean. It was like a one-man show, this guy on stage being C.S. Lewis, telling us the story of his conversion. How was it? Oh, Because remember, I had tickets to go see it, but it was three hours away, and my work got way too busy, and I, I bailed. You really missed out. It was really, really good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what you're supposed to tell me. I know, I know, but I can't lie. It's like you're gluten-free, and you're eating bread in front of someone who's <laughs> gluten-free, and you're like, oh, it's terrible, you're missing nothing. <laughs> no, it was, it was really well done. The text was drawn almost entirely from Surprised by Joy, The Problem of Pain, a little bit from Mere Christianity, and uh, The Weight of Glory, which meant that the people around me got two great performances, the one from the actor on the stage and the other one from me sitting next to them, completing all of the lines. Oh, I bet some people were quite annoyed. <laughs> we actually had about 25 people from our book club in the end go to this thing. That's fantastic. Yeah, and it meant we got the group discount as well. And one of our number, James, he sent me a message saying, several weeks back when paying for a painting I'd commissioned, an artist to paint, I arrived at his front door. I noticed C.S. Lewis works laid out on the outdoor table. I had no idea he was even a Christian, let alone a huge C.S. Lewis fan. I sparked up a good conversation with him about Lewis. And as I handed him the payment before I left, the same he normally charges, he handed me a small portion back and called it the C.S. Lewis discount. <laughs> That's fantastic. So if any other listeners are out there, just talk about C.S. Lewis in everyday life and you might get deductions. Who knows? Actually, speaking of loving things, I'm also reading Becoming Mrs. Lewis by Patty Callahan at the moment. It's a novelized form of the romance between Joy Davidman and C.S. Lewis. So good. Is it really? I'm about halfway through. It is beautifully written. She's really captured their voices really, really well. Do you learn anything new in it? I learned that Shadowlands lied to me. Uh, there, there, there's lots of little details that are in Shadowlands that, at least according to this book, are different. I'm kind of tempted now to go and find out which one is true. I'm much more inclined to believe that this one is true because it just sounds much more like Jack. Whereas in, if anyone out there has watched the Shadowlands movies, they're enjoyable. But the C.S. Lewis that's represented there 
isn't the same one that I recognise from his books. Whereas in Becoming Mrs. Lewis, I recognise them. I'll have to read that. And one last thing before we get started. On the day when this episode is published, not only have we been doing this podcast for over a year, we'll be two days before the anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death. Last year when we did this, I read the collect from the Episcopal Church because they actually have a collect just for Lewis. So I thought that'd be a nice way of kicking off today's episode. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God of searing truth and surpassing beauty, we give you thanks for Clive Staples Lewis, whose sanctified imagination lights fires of faith in young and old alike. Surprise us also with your joy, and draw us into that new and abundant life which is ours in Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the previous chapter, Jack was emphasizing that Jesus comes not to bring mere improvement, but transformation. In an effort to further communicate this idea, Lewis asks us to consider evolution. And in this episode, we're not going to spend time arguing about the veracity of evolution. As he points out, not everyone believes in it, but that's not important for us to be able to follow his argument here. He explains that evolution describes how man evolved from lower types of life. And he says that as a result of this, people often wonder what the next step is going to be. When is the thing beyond man going to appear? And he points out that people incorrectly predict this step. And they do this because they look back to see how things have worked until now. And he points out that dinosaurs were huge, heavily armored creatures. And if you've been seeing this, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the creatures would continue to grow larger and more heavily armored. But he says that instead, man came to dominate the planet. Man who is small, naked, and weak, but with big, sexy brains. And he says that it's through these brains that we conquered other animals and really nature. Lewis doesn't think we're descended from dinosaurs, does he? <laughs> no, no. I, I think he's thinking life in general. That there was a time when dinosaurs were the dominant life on the planet. And if you looked at the new creatures appearing, you wouldn't have put your money on these small naked homo sapiens. That makes more sense. He says that our rise to power was through a new kind of power. And so he says, likewise, with this next step, if it's really going to be new, it's going to have to be in a direction that we'd never dreamt of. After all, it's hardly worth calling it a new step unless it did that. He says, I should expect not merely difference, but a new kind of difference. I should expect not merely change, but a new method of producing the change. And finally, I should not be surprised if, when the thing happened, very few people noticed it was happening. And that's why it's better to call this next step a new step, because it is really new. It's not just about brainy men becoming brainier. It's, as Lewis said, a change from being creatures of God to being sons of God. But what makes this next step new? Well, the very first point, and potentially the most important point, is it came from outside of nature. He points out that the first instance of this new man came with the incarnation of Jesus. It's therefore not evolutionary at all, but something from outside nature, which is affecting the change. Second, it's reproduction without sex. If you think evolutionary, our genes are passed through reproduction. This next step isn't directly tied to sex. Third, and this point's fascinating, it's an optional step. If you think in evolutionary sense, it's not really optional. It's survival of the fittest. And so you're, na you're getting this natural force that's pushing you forward. We, at every step of this process, have the choice to optionally choose 
this new step or this next step or reject it. Fourth, the first instance referring to Jesus is the origin and center of life of all others. He came into the created universe, bringing with him the Zoe, the new life, and he transmits it by what I call the good infection. And fifth, the speed. When compared to development of man on this planet, the diffusion of Christianity over the human race seems like a flash of lightning. Not only is it spread rapidly, it keeps refusing to die, despite the world repeatedly predicting its death. It's quite funny, and I like what Lewis said here. Again and again, the world has thought Christianity was dying, dying by persecutions from without or corruptions from within, by the rise of Mohammedanism or Islam, the rise of physical sciences, the rise of great anti-Christian revolutionary movements like the French Revolution or communism. But every time the world has been disappointed. And this oh, was such a beautiful point he made. The world's first disappointment was at the crucifixion when Jesus returned from the dead. In a sense, and I quite realize how frightfully unfair it must seem to them, that has been happening ever since. They keep on killing the thing that he started. And each time, just as they are patting down the earth on its grave, they suddenly hear that it is still alive and has even broken out in some new place. And finally, the stakes are so much higher for this next step. In previous stages of human development, failing to take the next step meant losing perhaps at worst a few years. And he's referring to the evolutionary process. However, failing to take this next step, being transformed from a creature of God to a son of God, Lewis says we lose a prize, which in the strictest sense of the word is infinite. That there makes me think of Pascal's wager. Pascal was a philosopher and he presented this argument for why you should believe in God. And his essential argument was, what do you have to lose? If I have two lottery tickets and they're a dollar each, and the jackpot is going to be a million dollars, and I know for a fact that one of these tickets is that winning ticket, I would be a fool not to play. And so here, Lewis is saying that if you don't choose that to take that next step, you will literally be losing out on everything. And Lewis compares this next step to the climax of pregnancy. The only difference, he says, is that we get to choose whether or not we are born. And here he ponders an interesting question. He says, I wonder what an ordinary baby would do if it had the choice. It might prefer to stay in the dark, in warmth, and safety of the womb. For of course, it would think the womb meant safety. That would be just where it was wrong. For if it stays there, it will die. Yeah, we spoke about this actually a couple of weeks ago. And I think I said that I think if we could communicate to the unborn children inside a womb, we would probably actually have a very hard time trying to convince them that outside of the womb, life was actually better. Lewis goes on to say that the next step has already happened. As he mentioned, Christ has come and he's been transforming people for the last 2,000 years. They are, as Lewis says, dotted here and there all over the earth. Some are still hardly recognisable, but others can be recognised. And he says every now and again, one meets them. And his description of those who have evolved, taken that next step, it's just so wonderful. He says, their voices and faces are different from ours. Stronger, quieter, happier, more radiant. They begin where most of us leave off. They are, I say, recognisable, but you must know what you're looking for. They're not very like the idea of religious people, which you have formed from your general reading. 
they don't draw attention to themselves. You tend to think you're being kind to them when they are really being kind to you. They love you more than other men do, but they seem to need you less. They'll usually seem to have a lot of time and you'll wonder where that comes from. I really love this description because when I look back on, I call them shiny people, the shiny people in my life, those who have really communicated God's love to me. This description does fit them very nicely. I loved the part when it talks about they seem to have a lot more time and you'll wonder where it comes from. When, when you've gone through this transformation process, time becomes very different to you. What's important, your priorities become very different. And we think of we don't have enough time because of all of the stresses of the world and making money and success and the things that are pulling us in different directions. But when you go through your transformation process, there's a lot of reshifting that happens or dying to what you think is important and being reborn to what's truly important. And that's that's relationships, that's human beings, that's loving people, that's kindness. And, you know, and I can't even do it justice, but that's, that's the picture I get here. I read the biography of a Benedictine monk, and I remember the book's description of his funeral. It said that a lot of people had no idea that he knew so many people, and each of them thought that they were the most important person in the world to him. I think it's something of that quality. If you've ever sat down with somebody and you feel like they are really listening, they really care about you. Yeah, and I believe it's in this chapter two where he talks about if you if you try to manufacture it, it's not going to work. It's only when you allow that to flow out of your nature, and that's a nature that's been transformed by Christ, does it begin to happen. And Lewis goes on and says, when you recognize one of them, you will recognize the next one much more easily. And I strongly suspect, but how should I know, that they recognize one another immediately and infallibly across every barrier of color, sex, class, age, and even creeds. In that way, to become holy is rather like joining a secret society. To put it at its very lowest, it must be great fun. <laughs> this section here reminds me of the very end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And you and I are actually going to have an episode on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, specifically looking at where we see Lewis's theology, where we see his teaching actually in his stories. I'm going to have to watch the movie beforehand. You're going to have to read the book, man. <laughs> we'll see. But in the very final chapter, Professor Kirk is talking to the children and he's telling them that they will come across other people who have also been to Narnia and they will recognize them. Don't talk too much about it among yourselves and don't mention it to anyone else unless you find that they've had adventures of the same sort themselves. What's that? How will you know? Oh, you'll know, all right. Odd things they say. Keep your eyes open. Bless me, what do they teach them in these schools? That's beautiful to think about. But also at the same time, a little bit scary. I mean, imagine essentially what he's saying is when you become one of these transformed individuals, when your nature is transformed, you'll recognize someone else by the way they talk or the mannerisms or the way they view the world or treat people. But how sad must it be going through life knowing that the majority of people you meet aren't this? I don't mean it in some competitive, better way, but once you're transformed and you're, you're seeing the world from the right perspective, and then everyone else is talking about it from the, the wrong perspective, the untransformed, the more conformed, if you want to call it, way, I feel like that would be depressing. I don't know. I think it just means that when you do find them, it's all the more special. <laughs> that was a fancy way of saying, yeah, it's sad that you don't find them often. So when you do, it's really special. Yeah. <laughs> In this next section, Lewis looks at the question that, if we're going to die to ourselves and we're going to let Christ form within us, does that mean we're all going to become alike? We're all going to become these little Christs and there's not going to be diversity among us. 
Yeah, he says, to become new men means losing what we call ourselves. Out of ourselves, into Christ we must go. And if Christ is one, and if he is thus to be in us all, should we not be exactly the same? And he addresses this with a couple analogies. We wouldn't be the last chapter of the book if it didn't have a couple Lewis analogies in it. The first one he uses is a light analogy. Imagine that you have these individuals that have lived in the dark, and then you're about to describe to them what light is like. And Lewis says, you might tell them that if they come into the light, that same light would fall on them all, and they would all reflect it, and thus become what we call visible. Is it not quite possible that they would imagine that since they were all receiving the same light and reacting to it in the same way, i.e. all reflecting it, they would all look alike? Whereas you and I know that light will in fact bring out how different they are. Yeah, and a little later in this chapter, Lewis says that there's so much of Christ, but millions and millions of little Christs, which is what Christian means. Millions and millions of us, all different. Even this will be too few to express him fully. The second analogy he gives is one regarding salt. He invites us to consider a man tasting salt for the first time. Upon experiencing its strong, sharp taste, and hearing that some people use it in all of their cooking, he might reasonably conclude that all of that food would taste the same. But of course, anyone that's done cooking knows the complete opposite happens. Salt actually brings out the unique taste in food. And actually, this is one of the reasons why Jesus told us to be salt and light. We give flavor to the world. So the point in both of these analogies is that although there is a common factor, light falling on objects, it doesn't mean that all of those objects will naturally look the same. In the same way, if salt is added to all food, that doesn't mean that all of the food is going to taste the same. So in the same way, when you add Jesus, it doesn't mean that everybody looks like a little cookie cutter Christian. They will all look different and they will all bring their own flavor to the world. Yeah, in fact, we become our true selves. When this happens, I would argue that the world forms us into false selves, and these false selves are actually quite conformed. Oh, very boring. Yeah, very boring, because we're all being conformed by the same society. Only when we die to that and we allow Christ to form in us do we become our true selves. But as we discussed in the chapter entitled Counting the Cost, we try to resist Christ. But as Lewis points out, the more we resist Christ, the less free we become. Yeah, we like to think that we're preserving our independence and being our true selves. But Lewis argues that the complete opposite is true. And we actually just see our base desires that have been shaped by heredity, our upbringing, our surroundings, our natural desires. He says, what I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested to me by devils. <laughs> I really like this part. He said, I am not in my natural state nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. And, and, and in contrast, Lewis tells us, it's when we give everything to Christ that we first begin to have a real personality. And he even makes a claim that personality can be found nowhere outside of God. He then says something which we've previously quoted in the quote of the week. Sameness is to be found most among the most natural men, not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike all the great tyrants and conquerors have been. How gloriously different are the saints. And that is true. When you look in church history, saints lead interesting lives. Great tyrants and dictators? Not so much. It's the same old boring sins done in new ways. 
And the saints really do provide us with the best evidence for what Lewis has been arguing here. When you look through all of the different saints, they vary in almost every single way. Some are single, some are married, some are young, some are old, some are educated, some are uneducated. The only thing that unites them is their love and commitment to Christ. I wish so much uh, that our society would hold saints up as heroes much more frequently, that children would be inspired by their stories, hear their stories. Well, actually, we're just recording this on a Sunday after I've been to church and all of the children at my parish dressed up as their favorite saints. At the first part of the homily, Father went and spoke to each of them and asked them to explain who they were and to share a little bit of their story. Oh, well, your church is doing it well. <laughs> Have you seen the movie St. Vincent? I, I've, seen, I've seen a few clips of it. Bill Murray, right? Bill Murray, it's exactly right. And it's, he's not a saint, but it's, it's a story where all of the kids have to select a person who they believe aspires to sainthood. And he picks the most unexpected human being, a deadbeat, somewhat screw-up jerk. But at the end of the movie, you will cry. That's a promise. <laughs> this whole process requires humility and a complete surrender to Jesus. Lewis says, but there must be a real giving up of the self. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours just because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. I like that. Probably because it's very close to that misquote of Lewis. I was just going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. And Jack makes the point that this idea can be found throughout life. He says if you want to make a good impression on people, the first thing you should probably do is stop thinking about the sort of impression you're making. And in the same way, if you want to produce original literature or art, you just need to forget about that and just produce something truthful. And if you do that, it will inevitably become original without you noticing. Lewis ends this chapter and book four and mere Christianity with something of an altar call, a challenge to his listeners and readers. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. And that last line, nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. I'm sure we're going to mention that a lot when we're talking about the great divorce. And Lewis then ends with this final sentence. Look to yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. That's so beautiful. And as I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, you might be thinking, if you're like me at all, how do we do this, though? I mean, this is beautiful. I would love Christ to form in me. I want Christ to form in me. I want to become a new person. But if you're a type A personality like me, it's like, okay, give me the five-step program. What do I need to do every day to, to do this? And the first thing I would say is get rid of that. Like that, that defeats the whole purpose. The purpose of this is Christ is forming in you. So by just by your desire for him to form within you, Christ is already going to work. But there are some things we can do that can help this. In the spiritual retreat I was on this past weekend, discussed this. 
And probably the shortest, simplest way to, because I know we've been talking for a while here, is create the silence and the solitude. And when you sit in silence and solitude, I love this quote, your true self sits in the presence of Christ and watches your false self walk by. It's when we it's when we sit there and we allow Christ to love us. And sometimes we don't even need to have a plan. We don't even need to say the right words, right prayers, but just sit there and be present. 10 minutes every day, then 15, then 20, but increase that. And you'll just allow that space for Christ to form within you. And her whole thing was predicated, the whole retreat was predicated on the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. And God doesn't come to Elijah in the the fire or the wind or the thunder, but God comes to Elijah in the whisper, the silence, the Hebrew word sowed is translated a few different ways. We need to create that silence in our own life to allow God to speak to us, to speak to our heart, to form within us. And this should be our main goal, because as Lewis himself said, if Christianity is false, it's of no importance at all. If it's true, it's of ultimate importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So make a decision and run with it. Since I'm on my Francis Chang kick at the moment, there's another line from Crazy Love. He says, our greatest fear should not be failure, but of succeeding at things in life which don't really matter. Wow. It's a great way to end this. As always, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode with all of the links and quotations. The next episode is going to be my interview on theosis with Joe Heschmeyer. And the episode after that, Matt and I will be having a little bit of a retrospective on mere Christianity, talking about what it was like going through this over the course of a year, particular topics that really jumped out at us this time. Yeah, our goal with that is we, we've been going through, like we said, 20 hours of mere Christianity. And David and I want to each pull out a few of the key themes that that stuck out to us. And hopefully it's somewhat of a summary chapter or, or episode, but more than that. Yeah, it's also just an opportunity for the two of us just to sit back and reflect after doing this for a year and see what we learned, see how it was different reading a book in public, so to speak. Listeners, keep your keep your eye out for this. But Dave and I have been talking about creating some sort of way for you guys to give us feedback. And so probably by the time we release this episode, we'll be getting to that point where we'll have something in place where we can we can get some feedback on what we can do better, like what they loved about what we've done. But at the same time, Dave and I both know we're not perfect. And this is a format we've done this with that's worked very well, but maybe there's some suggestions for improvement. But in the meantime, if you have some immediate thoughts, please feel free to message us either on Instagram or Twitter at Pints with Jack. You can also message us through the contact me form on restlesspilgrim.net. As we've said before, we're going to be moving on to The Great Divorce, but one last thing we're going to do to end out this season. The Lamppost listener, they have just finished going through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So Matt and I are going to do the same thing, but just in one episode and with a particular goal in mind. We're going to be looking through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and seeing what teachings of particularly mere Christianity we see come off the page in Lewis's fictional work. That's going to be so much fun. And in preparation for going through The Great Divorce, please get yourself a copy and take a little selfie of either the book or yourself with the book and message us again on Twitter and Instagram at Pints with Jack. So until next time, further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.